You are listening to a podcast of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. CCEF is committed to restoring Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. You can find our podcasts, books, articles, videos, and many more resources for Christ-centered pastoral care at our website, ccef.org. Welcome to CCEF On The Go. I'm your host, Alastair Groves, and today I'm talking with my friend and colleague, Todd Stride. Todd is a counselor and faculty member at CCEF. Uh, Todd, how are you? I'm doing well, Alistair, thanks. Um, glad to hear it. Um, today, I wanted to uh, address what will sound like a very simple question that we got uh, in response to my requests for uh, input on the podcast. Um, but, but someone um, emailed in and, and their question was this. It was, um, how do you interpret life biblically when shame keeps rearing its ugly head and won't abate? And I feel like there's probably at least three pieces to that question that we could dig in on. But I'd love to hear you just starting by offering any initial thoughts, which could take the form of an answer to that question, or they might be a form of exploring the question before we get to an answer. But uh, what, what initially jumps into your mind when you hear that? Yeah, I think what initially jumps into my mind, Alastair, is, is maybe even somewhat of a, a provocative statement. And that is, I, I don't think our, our ultimate goal should be to extinguish shame. Or hmm. they use the word abate. Uh, I, for most people, that's not going to happen. And I don't know how important it should be in terms of us trying to accomplish it. Hmm. Well, you're right. That is provocative. I like it. Uh, say more. What do you mean? Okay. My, my experience has been that, that shame, the experience of shame as, as it happens throughout our life, um, it just, it tends to, to both linger and to, to sort of burrow into us as a person in that it kind of gets woven into us. And, and it's not typically something that we can necessarily turn off or say, I don't want to feel this anymore. So therefore, I'm going to do something so I don't feel it. It feels like it, it tends to be a part of us. And we have limited control of, of shutting it off or making it a bait. Pausing here for a second. Let me, um, let me think out loud um, in response. First off, I'm tracking with you. That is my experience as well. Second off, um, there's this way, I mean, I'm thinking about Ed's book, uh, Shame Interrupted. And one of the key things I took from that book that was so helpful to me in thinking about shame that, re that really kind of turned my whole view of what, what shame was and how it worked on its head was the idea that um, shame can be an accurate experience, even if it's not something that you've done wrong, right? So you can have shame brought on you by something you've done that's wrong. You can also have shame brought on you by something that happened to you, a way you have been wronged, victimized, degraded, treated as less than valuable, less than human. And, 
Ed in that book said something so counterintuitive initially to me, uh, which was the idea that that's actually right. Like you have been shamed. It's not just in your head. And he said, paradoxically, it is so helpful to people to hear this experience you have of feeling icky or dirty or naked or contagious or whatever. It's, um, that's not a problem in your head that you just need to sort of get your thinking right and get over. You're actually experiencing something real. You have indeed been shamed. You've been, you have been brought into something that uh, was not what you were made for or created for, that you have been, uh, you know, marked by this experience in, in some, you know, negative and, and lasting way. And uh, paradoxically, he said, you know, that's so often freeing for people. That's so uh, comforting for people to realize, okay, it's not just because I'm not doing a good enough job of, you know, remembering my identity in Christ or repenting my way out of what I've done. And there's a, there's a reality to it. And scripture is full of the awareness that that does indeed happen. And that does affect the way people see you, the way you experience being part of society and community and the church and your family and, and so on. So I'm connecting all of that to what I hear you saying of sometimes shame doesn't seem to abate much, or it seems, I, I like the way you put it, woven in to the very fabric of my life and, and who I am. And there's this way in which um, that can actually be a, a deeply freeing thing to hear, where it's not saying um, you have a problem that you can't get over your shame. It's saying, no, this is, this is real. You know, you're, yeah, you're, you're really talking about something that is happening to you, inside you, whatever the case might be. That's not the end of the story. And so that's where I, my hesitation a moment ago, and I think you're calling it provocative, recognizes that that's not where the gospel leaves us. It's just like, well, shame's a part of you. Tough, tough news, but you know, at least you're not crazy. Um, there's more to it than that, right? But, but there's something really important about slowing down on that. Now, let me, let me stop myself. Am I addressing the thing you're talking about, or are you going... Are you saying something slightly different than that? No, I think you're absolutely addressing it. And, and that, that is, in fact, freeing. But, but if, if our assumption is that we're supposed to eradicate it, abolish it, make it stop, if that's our assumption, then what I'm saying feels hopeless. Right. But, right. but that's it, what I'm saying, I think provide some freedom because scripture does open up different alternatives instead of making it stop let's say believing it away or thinking it away or trying to correct it through other experiences away yep. instead yep. of that i think where scripture takes us then is it's not about extinguishing shame or getting over shame or abating shame but it's about opposing shame and the hmm. the voice the the accusations the lingering feelings of identity it's about we we can oppose them and we should oppose them and we can oppose them but we're likely not going to eradicate them right right in in the same way that you're not going to eradicate a scar from having been imprisoned and beaten for the name of Christ but that doesn't make this scar, this irreparable, you know, terrible, oh no, I'm never going to get it. It's, it's not, it's, it's part of, it's part of a life lived in a fallen, broken world that does not have to be either the defining piece of you or um, even a piece that you should be trying to get rid of 
per se. Um, let me, so let me, let me do this. Let me take a stab at re-asking the question then in a way that we might be more easily or more comfortably able to answer. The, the question is saying, okay, biblically, we want to live rightly in the face of shame. What do we do when it seems to be overwhelming and it seems to be lasting? It seems to me that part of what you and I are saying thus far is, okay, <clears throat> we, um, we actually start by saying, well, let's, let's get our expectations right here. What is, it, what is even our goal in the response to shame? Mm -hmm. It's not for the feeling of shame to be entirely gone. Um, it's to do something in the face of an experience of shame. It's to respond to shame as it is felt, bumped into, encountered, etc. How would we, how would we say, here's the hope? You've got this shame and it, it isn't going away. It's, it's, it's fiery. It's in your face. It, it feels constant. It feels so debilitatingly awful. It feels like it separates you from God and other people. What, um, what do we do with that? How would we offer hope in a way that's different um, than, than we might instinctively say, which is, okay, great, I do something and then it goes away and I don't feel it ever again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a great, great way of, of reframing it. And I think part of the hope is in a proper understanding. So that's part of the work we've just been talking about is a proper understanding of shame. And, and maybe another piece of the proper understanding is that how shame works is that because it is a feeling or an emotion, it, it feels true. It is incredibly persuasive and convincing because it feels so convincing. And that is the power behind shame is that we, we tend to have, what well, we tend to believe our emotions. They are, um, yeah. they are authoritative in a lot of ways. It, it takes us to sec it takes us a lot of actual power or control or discipline to second guess emotion. So shame is powerful and convincing because it feels that way. So the, so what do we do with that? If we can recognize and we can help people recognize that shame is trying to convince them of what is ultimately true. Hmm. And we can also propose that emotions, and particularly the emotion or the feeling of shame, is going to be unreliable in its authority. Then it opens the door for there being a different authority about life about whether or not you're okay, about whether or not you're disgusting, about whether or not you're a failure. Mm -hmm. if, if we can at least have the option that shame is going to be proposing, a, let's say, a, a proclamation about you, mm -hmm. and we should question its authority, then it opens us up to considering a different authority about who you are, whether you're, you're okay, whether you're right. gross, et cetera. I, I wondered, I'm just, <clears throat> I'm struck by your, you know, use of this idea of there, there's, a, there's a, shame has a voice and it's speaking into your ear. I feel like in some ways what we're saying in, in the first part of our conversation is to say that voice 
may never entirely go silent. And in fact, how loud or quiet that voice is, is not actually our biggest concern. We'd always, we'd always like it to be quieter um, rather than louder if we were given our choice. But, but the fundamental question is not how loud is the voice. The, the really fundamental question in terms of what is the hope, what's our response is how loud is the voice of the gospel? How loud is the voice of, of Christ? And so even, I like, I like the way you're using the, this idea of competing authorities. I, in some ways, I almost wonder if it's competing volumes, um, competing voices, because I think um, the, the danger of what someone could be hearing and what we're saying is they could be saying, okay, I've got to turn down the voice of shame as quiet as I can get it, turn up the voice of God as loud as I can get it. And so therefore I'm failing if the shame isn't getting quieter fast enough, as opposed to, no, however loud the voice of shame is, we do want the voice of God to be louder. And usually it starts pretty still, small and quiet uh, because shame is pretty, you know, megaphone heavy. But, but ultimately we're actually, we're wanting part of the, the response of faith to the experience of shame is not if I just believe enough or listen to God enough, the shame goes away. It's rather no matter how loud the shame is, it can never compete with the voice of God. The voice of God ultimately has the authority. The voice of God ultimately has the um, ha- has the louder call. Meaning that, um, let's say you are someone who has walked through some kind of uh, abuse, for example. That would be a very common reason for someone to feel shame, right? Mm-hmm. So you've walked through abuse, um, probably especially if it's sexual abuse, but regardless of what kind of abuse any you know you've been you have been treated as an object and as less than human and as degraded by another human being um, that voice in one sense again going back to ed's argument he's saying there's a reality you have actually been wrongly treated you have actually been um, pressed down by that you're you're responding that shame is telling you something true um, but the voice of shame becomes a problem fundamentally at its it becomes the most fundamental problem when it's the only voice. And so if you can, on the one hand, say, yes, I really was degraded by that experience. That is, in fact, an accurate capturing of my suffering, and it does linger. But the voice of Christ that says, you are honored, you are precious, you are beloved, you are pure and clean, you are embraced rather than outcast, you are victorious and overcoming rather than defeated and cast down, that that, that those you could actually be at a, at, in one sense, and I hesitate to use this word, maybe this isn't the best way to put it. I want to say an excellent place, hearing loudly the voice of shame and yet hearing even more loudly the voice that overcomes that shame, that interrupts that shame. And so um, while on one level, I think the louder the voice of Christ is and the longer that goes and the more your heart is listening to him and loving his loving him and therefore his view of you is defining you, I think it wouldn't be unrealistic to say that the shame's volume might well decrease over time. That would not be an unrealistic hope or expectation. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the, the point is not how far down the shame has gone. The point is, is the loudness of the shame or the presence of the shame, is that driving you to cling to the voice of Christ ever more loudly, ever more centrally? Is, is that again? I mean, I think your I think your authority language is going there too. But I think the way you're introducing voice to me seems like seems like it sets up a really helpful and different paradigm than the one we want, which is Jesus make my shame go away. Yeah, yeah. The in 
in the initial stages of helping somebody, my the work is first going to be, let me help you entertain the possibility that there's another voice who is speaking into this and about this. And the voice of shame, what it says about you and your value and your worth and your condition, that's going to be really loud. But let's just entertain. Let's Let's consider that there's another voice. If there is, what would it say? Who gets to say it? Where does it say these things? And you're right, Alistair, that over time, the volume changes on both of those. Can't, yeah. We can't guarantee exactly how it'll look, but right. what we do know absolutely is there is another voice, the voice of God that speaks in that too often is is either absent altogether or is suppressed such that it it doesn't have any airtime right because because how could the voice of god say anything else if the voice of shame is true there there are no other channels right if i'm disgusting god god having a different opinion on that or you telling me that the bible says god has a different opinion on that is irrelevant because i know from my experience that it can't be true the only thing that can be true of me is i am disgusting and wrong and filthy and and again i want to let me let me let me clarify one thing i haven't said that could easily go in the wrong direction it is very possible for shame to be sending false messages right shame can certainly be telling me things about myself um that are that are wildly untrue. And the voice of God will say something that says, shame is utterly wrong about you. Um, you. You are not a failure. In fact, you shouldn't even be defining yourself on that particular scale, uh, which you're looking on. Um, but, but I think for me, the more difficult times to deal with are, well, what if what shame says about me is true? What if I really did, you know, commit some really grievous sin and was publicly revealed and exposed? What if I really did experience abuse? What if I really did um, have uh, an alcoholic parent and I was humiliated by my association with them? And well, those are, those are harder when shame is saying something that's got a significant accuracy to it. And that's why I'm gravitating towards saying, actually, even there, it's the voice of Christ being louder that is our goal and that has this unbelievably powerful impact. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. Yeah, and you're identifying, Alistair, that, that shame is usually bound up with factual events. Um, but where, where it goes off is shame likes to make a conclusion. Uh, that's, that's where we would say, you know, God, God may see the same events, but he sure doesn't draw the same conclusion. And, and that's where we're tempted to equate our feelings of the voice of shame with the voice of God, where we, we equate how we feel, and this is everybody, I think, how we feel with, well, if I feel this, it must be true, it feels true, and this is probably how God sees me. And that's where we push back. I love that, Todd. Uh, God comes to a different conclusion than shame does, and we too easily hear the voice of shame as the voice of God. That's... It's a great place for us to wrap it up. Thank you so much for the conversation. I look forward to talking sometime soon. Great being here.
Today's resource for those who are interested in going deeper is The Gospel for Shame, a blog by Ed Welch. As you heard during the course of our conversation between Todd and me, Ed has really been the one to shape our thinking about the topic of shame at CCEF. So anything Ed has written on shame is well worth a read. Of course, the the primary source there being his excellent book-length work called Shame Interrupted. But the Gospel for Shame will give you just a little taste of how he's thinking and take some of the things we talked about a bit further. It will be posted on our website, ccef.org slash podcast. And we'll be free there until the next one goes up, next episode goes up. As always, if you've got questions or thoughts for us, we do invite you to send things our way, podcast at ccef.org. Shoot us an email. Till next time, blessings. Blessings.